Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 78, Transition Training with the Sonics Builders and Pilots Foundation Transition Training Syllabus. So we've been gone for a while, all um, hunkered down here through the winter. We had the COVID lockdown. All that is starting to kind of fade into the background, and we're back, and it's time to get back at the podcast. Coincidentally enough, the weather's getting nice, and I think flying season is starting up here. So with spring on its way in, might be a good time to circle back around to either your needs as a new Sonics pilot needing transition training, or maybe uh, from a proficiency standpoint, uh, knocking the the winter rust off and getting ready to get out there and fly again. So we're going to talk about some some options for a builder or a a new Sonics pilot to get transition training. We'll talk specifically about the SPPF transition training syllabus, and then we'll wrap it up with a a discussion from someone who went through this themselves and had to find a a creative solution to try to get the hours he needs. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic 1374. And once again, joining me are my two good flying buddies, Gary Motley and John Gillis. So, Gary, what you been up to? Well, I can certainly tell the spring is here. Not only are the flowers from my wife's garden starting to bloom and pop up, uh, I got extra ambitious the after this afternoon. I got finished with work a little bit, drove one of my motorcycles to the airport, and actually gave my plane a bath. How about that, John? You John gave uh, you gave Phoenix a bath. I did. Now it's all pretty. Well, it's the first time. You know, uh, in some cultures, that's like your shell of immunity. If you wash that off, then uh, you're going to get sick right away. So, I don't know. I'm a little skeptical about washing airplanes. No, no. Keep it nice and slippery. Everything just slides right off you. By the way, I've already had my COVID injections anyway. So, (laughs) the only thing I find now is my my next rabies vaccination. Actually, Gary, uh, you know, my, my polished aluminum, you know, my plane's not all polished, but it has some patches of polish. And if you wipe the dirt off, then you see how bad the polish looks. You feel compelled to get out there and repolish. So I try to avoid that at all costs. I understand. Yes. And Gary, when you get your rabies vaccination, you're welcome to come back down here. You know, I was thinking about aggravating you last weekend, but I didn't do it. I don't know why. Hmm. Oh, I did hear, though, however, that you uh, have, have once again uh, volunteered my services for another one of our uh, Sonics Xenos pilots that are to the fold. We we can go down that path if you'd like. <laughs> I got you and, and uh, Jeff involved in that little fiasco. Yeah, no, he's been actually one of my plans this weekend is go out and meet with him uh, Saturday, hopefully, and see what I can do to help him with his Aero V engine and uh, basically control him. I think. Well, let, let me uh, <clears throat> elaborate a little bit. This is good for the podcast. I got a phone call from a guy who got my name from someone who had been listening to the podcast and said, you're local in Colorado and I'm buying a Xenos and I need help. And he just bought this thing. It looks like the engine took a digger and he needs help. And so I said, I don't know the, the, the ROV at all. 
Um, but I know two guys who are on this podcast that definitely know the ROV. And so I gave him your guys' number without even asking you. Oh, that's all right. Because yeah, he's like very pleasant. I'm going to try to help him out. What I can do. Yeah, we're, we're here to help. So he's our decision. He's going to pull the engine. So. Well, you know, uh, John, um, we, we do like to help people out. And uh, so I'm sure that between Gary and I, we can definitely get him going in the right direction. But I have to say, John, um, you're familiar with the term crop dusting. You know, that's where you, uh, you know, just casually walk by someone and pass gas and just keep right on going like it. Oh, yeah, that's me. Yeah, that's that's basically what you just did to us. Uh, thanks a lot hey, there, buddy. Hey, I fly a Pawnee. I mean, that's a crop duster. Yeah, so, well, yeah. let's rub it off. <laughs> oh, I thought you guys needed the the challenge. All right, well, well, we'll take care of it. Well, John, um, what have you been up to? Uh, let's see. Just kind of hunkered down for the winter and the COVID. Um, I just got my uh, sailplane annual. So it's going out on the line on Saturday, I hope. It looks like a good soaring day. So we're just starting the soaring season here. Uh, the I Last October, I bought a Cessna 140 that Carl Benda took me back to Bemidji, Minnesota to pick up. And so I did a nice nine-hour transition flight solo back to Colorado with it and qualified for my insurance issues after the after that trans transit, um, been working with, you know, dealing with a 72 year old aircraft, um, because it was really nice to buy, but boy, wow, it's got lots of stuff I got to do with it. The Sonics has been pushed into the back of the hangar. I've flown it about maybe four hours in the last year. Um, it's really sad, but it looks good. I like it. I'm not going to sell it yet, but, uh, it's sitting there. Battery charger's on. Yeah, you know, the, the shiny off that 140 is going to wear off eventually, and then you're going to want to go fast and go upside down again. So, you know, it'll have a place in your fleet. You know, I each of my airplanes has a mission, and if I want to go upside down, I got the Sonics. If I want to just go low and slow and play, you know, uh, vintage aircraft, I got the 140. And then if I want to just go play in the sky with no engine, I got my... my uh, sailplane so i've got it almost all covered mm-hmm. yeah i need something to take the family a long way though so like maybe a maybe a cessna 210 or something well you got the next best thing you got our buddy carl so you just uh you know borrow his that's true he's got pl- more planes than he'll ever fly and he's got a bonanza and a nice 175 and a 310 the man is kind of fun but it's not really a cross-country machine all right. Good. Good, good. Well, we got two guests uh, for this episode. Mike Farley. Mike's been on the podcast uh, a bunch of times, so he's back. And uh, Mike, um, how's things going? Doing well, guys. Thanks for having me back. So you were t- saying earlier that you have been uh, getting pretty busy with work. Um, your flying gig has been keeping you well entertained, huh? Yeah, things were, uh, I like corporate, things were really slow from about a year ago up through the end of last fall, and then kind of a natural slowdown over holiday season, and then about February 1st, a, a switch was flipped, and all of a sudden we got busy again, so it's kind of nice, it's always, uh, you know, you kind of look at it as job security when they actually use you a little bit, so been 
been busy. Uh, been flying the Challenger a whole bunch. I'm actually on the road tonight, head home late tomorrow evening, and I'll be in the King Air next week. So it's good. Good. Things are good. Um, Wax is doing well. I've got a annual coming up by the end of this month. I've got a few things I want to do to it, a lot of cosmetic cleanup, and hopefully, if everything goes according to plan, we'll meet you guys all up at Oshkosh this summer. Yeah, I can't wait for the, the good weather. It's been a little bit windy these last couple of weeks, but um, at least the winter gloom is gone. Man, it was a rough winter. Yeah, it's it's. I know in Ohio, it's always, you know, windy, cool, whatever the case may be, but at least when it's still light at 7 or 7.30 in the evening and you can go out after work and do something in the hangar, that's always a good sign. So mm. like the rest of everybody waiting on some warm weather and want to keep uh, putting hours on the Jabiru and flying it as much as I can and, like I said, uh, hopefully enjoy the summer a little bit. Good. All right. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for coming back on, Mike. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. All right, and then rounding out the team for this episode is Brennan Stover. Brennan is a, a new Sonics pilot, and he has uh, just recently gone through his own experience getting some Sonics experience to, um, to get himself ready to fly and to make his insurance company happy. So, Brennan, thanks for taking some time and, and joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, so, guys, let's just jump right into this. Um, so, I guess the first thing I, I want to just set the stage here. So... We've done some other episodes on transition training. We've talked about options. We've talked about um, insurance and, and the implications of either getting transition training or not. We've talked about it from a safety standpoint. Um, and so I don't want to go through all of that all over again. But I do want to make sure that we, we capture the, the key points in what we're trying to accomplish. Um, so I think probably the, 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 the short list in my mind runs like this, you know, the primary goal is safety and, and your personal skill is what is directly going to lead to enhancing a level of safety for the Sonics community. And then that directly bolsters our, our safety record and the rate of accidents that Sonics pilots are having. And then kind of the, the whole experimental aircraft industry as a whole, you want to avoid dinging your airplane and paying for damages and then lastly, you want to be able to get the insurance company to write you a policy. So if you do ding your airplane, uh, somebody helps spread that out. Mike, why don't you help us out here? Let's let's roll the clock back a couple of years. Um, actually, probably more than a couple of years. Let's roll the clock back to when you were working with the factory to put together a transition training program uh, that ultimately went to become the Sonics Builders and Pilots transition training syllabus. So tell us kind of what was on your mind at the point where you got involved with them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was, I think it was 2013 when Robbie Culver and Eric Sieber and I kind of started the foundation. And the goal for the foundation was then still remains safety for the Sonics fleet. And we did a little bit of investigation and kind of found that Sonics accidents are generally caused by one of two things. Number one is engine failure, uh, be it whatever the case may be. And number two is loss of aircraft control. And you, Jeff, have done so much with the podcast about helping the engine failure side of things. What we tried to do with the foundation was focus on what we could. And that was, okay, how can we stop? having people crash through airplanes because they lost control um, for whatever the reason that it may be. And we thought that a transition training guideline of some kind was going to help. So 
shortly thereafter, after the foundation had started, we started working on some projects. I actually ended up writing the first version of the transition training syllabus before I even knew the factory was thinking about T-Flight. Uh, if you look at some of the early renditions of it, you'll see that uh, there's actually a lot of common similarities between the T-Flight, what, what is now the T-Flight of the transition training syllabus, and the student training syllabus at Ohio State's Flight Education Department, where I was. But uh, kind of wrote all that up, and shortly thereafter, we started talking to, at the time it was Jeremy, and talked to Mark Scheibel, and they had just... Uh, recently hired Joe Norris to kind of work as a fleet manager, as well as little do we know at the time, a, a primary flight instructor for the T-Flight. So we all kind of got together and we did some revisions and we came out with what we now call the transition training syllabus. The whole idea, the whole purpose behind it is take somebody who is current and proficient in flying, but not current and proficient in maneuvering, handling a Sonex, how can we, in as little time as practical, get them comfortable with the flight characteristics of the airplane? Because we did not want to have any more accidents where the cause was loss of aircraft control. So that was kind of our goal. We were somewhat limited in what all we could do because, in essence, you basically have you – know, most people are going to be doing training in their own airplane or any friend's airplane local. Uh, at the time, we, again, we didn't know that uh, T-Flight was in the works. Uh, that was a great program when, when it came out, but unfortunately, it's no longer uh, an option for the factory. So we're kind of back now to square one where it's just find the local – friend that has a Sonex and hopefully gets some experience and time in their airplane. And that's kind of what we tailored the T-Flight program or the, the training syllabus to do was, you know, find somebody, try to get some experience in the airplane as quickly as possible. So when you jump into the airplane you just built or into the airplane you just bought, you at least have some comfort with the airplane. Uh, and I'm sure if we want to talk a little bit about the load up process, we can do that. But uh, as the years have gone on, what we've kind of discovered as the foundation, and I think what everybody listening here knows, it's it's very difficult to find people who are willing and able to really let their aircraft be used for training, either be it an insurance mandate or just wear and tear on the airplane or whatever. You can normally find somebody who's willing to give you a ride, and that's wonderful, but when it comes to training, that's where things get a little bit difficult. It's something that we've been working on. It's something that we try to find an answer to, but there's just no easy answer out there. Uh, people build these things. They covet them. They don't want to see them get ripped up. Uh, and unfortunately, in the training environment, that can sometimes happen. So, uh, you know, if, if, if anybody has a good idea on how to you know, get some T-flight instructors available, whatever the case may be, let's talk about it. But that's kind of a, an ongoing dilemma that we keep facing as a, as a community and whole. Yeah, Mike, um, you talked about the, the, the factory T-flight program and that is no longer available and, and that's not coming back anytime soon. So we're not going to, we're not going to belabor that point. We're not going to spend a lot of time, you know, wringing our hands over it, but you know, what are the options that a person is left with currently? Well, the way I see it, you, you only have really um, a handful. 
you can hire a CFI to come teach you in your airplane. And if you bought the airplane and it's not in your phase one flight test period, um, that might be a perfectly acceptable solution. If the plane will handle you and your flight instructor, um, you just hire your local CFI and, and do all your training in your airplane. And when the insurance company um, sees that you have your dual completed, then they'll write you a policy. But that kind of goes back to, you know, the, the, the second option, which is just to fly naked for the first 10 or 15 hours until you have the minimum amount of uh, PIC experience before the insurance will write you a policy anyway. Essentially, that's what you'd be doing if you hired a CFI to come fly with you in your own airplane. So, you know, there's some risk in either one of those that the risk is that you're going to have a problem in the first few hours and, um, you know, you're not going to have any sort of insurance safety net to fall back on. Yeah, it is. You know, the regulations in this case are easy. You know, if you're a private pilot or a sport pilot with a tail dragger endorsement, you're legal to fly the airplane. Uh, the, the issue in most of these cases are insurance. You know, most insurance companies are really cracking down on home builds and cracking down on uh, really about anything, even in the, the field I'm in right now, which is corporate flying, you know, policy rates have been going up 20 to 30 percent. And it's it's kind of, uh, you know, I hate to say scary, but uh, it's it's uh, policies are going up and people are getting a lot more restrictive on insurance policies. So, yes, you you're building your Sonics and you you want to start thinking about flying it pretty soon. So you call your insurance uh, agent and they say, well, great, you need 10 hours of dual in an airplane before we'll cover you and yours. Or same thing if you buy one and you, you want to have somebody fly it or you want to fly it to your home base and show it off to everybody and your insurance agent's going to say the same thing. So that is the dilemma right now is is not so much the the regulations by the FARs, it's the insurance coverage allowances. And like everybody, you hate to hear people flying with no coverage, although there's people that are are doing that. And maybe if you want to say they're kind of getting away with it, but uh, it's, it's not a good situation. You hate to hear that, although some people feel that's kind of their only choice. So in this case now, if you do want coverage, either first flight coverage or uh, coverage to fly your already flying airplane, you're basically limited to finding somebody who is willing to let you fly in theirs with them. Uh, and uh, the only good news so far that I've heard, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong on this, I believe insurance adjusters and underwriters are still allowing time and type, even if it's not with a CFI, to count. So if you do happen to find somebody local that has a Sonex and you go up and you fly a couple hours with them, and even if that person's not an instructor, uh, that time they, they still kind of look upon it favorably and uh, it kind of maybe cuts your break a little bit. Is that what you guys are seeing and hearing as well? Yeah, Mike, um, yeah. talking to uh, um, Victoria Newville at uh, AirPros, um, she's been on talking about insurance before, talking to her just recently about this. It really kind of varies. Some underwriters approach it a little differently than others. If you have a bunch of Sonics time, then you're already essentially an experienced Sonics pilot, and they'll write you a policy just based on all your numbers, your total time, your total tailwheel, all that kind of stuff. Um, but if you have just a little bit of Sonics time, that's where there's some variability. You know, how much is, you know, a little bit? How much is enough to get you out of the the too little category? That's not entirely clear. Um, 
you know, maybe 10 or 15 hours, maybe some of them will accept, you know, you've got 10 or 15 hours PIC and that's good enough. And they'll, they'll go ahead and just write you based on your overall qualifications. Um, you're going to have to talk to your agent about that specific, you know, threshold that your underwriter is going to require. Good, good. And that's, that is something that I would recommend for anybody listening to this podcast. If you're thinking about purchasing a flying airplane or you're nearing completion of yours, find an agent. You give somebody an actual voice to your dilemma because sometimes they can vouch for you. Sometimes they can fight for you better than we can just with a call to Falcon or EAA or whatever the case may be. Sometimes that can't help a little bit. But yeah, you're right, Jeff. I know a lot of the background uh, qualifications for the pilot can make a big difference. You know, a 75-hour sport pilot is going to be different than a 3000 hour instrument rated pilot, Mm -hmm. but, uh, it still, no matter what it's, it is a dilemma right now. There's very limited people that are willing and able to, to let people fly in the airplanes. And I know right now, a lot of people are looking for a couple of Loda holders, uh, in the Sonics world. And I just don't think there's any right now that are offering, uh, you know, official transition training per a Loda right now. Um, unless you guys have heard of somebody recently, I don't think anybody's currently, uh, currently offering that kind of training. There's no one that has stepped forward and said um, they're currently offering it. If there are any load of holders, they've been very quiet about it. Okay. So, so yeah, that's kind of your two options is uh, you either or roll the dice and fly your airplane. And, and, you know, even if you do that, then hopefully you can fly something similar just to try to get some light sport or some light control feel experience. Or if you can find somebody with a, a Sonic, see if you can beg and plead and steal a ride in their airplane a little bit and do whatever you can to get yourself prepared to fly yours. Yeah. Well, Jeff, let me, uh, <clears throat> I just recently purchased a Cessna 140. Um, and I called the insurance broker that I, my insur- my Sonics insurance is with and said, okay, I'm going to go buy this 140. What is it going to take? And they said 10 hours of, of dual time with an instructor um, to be qualified under their policy. Well, the logistics of doing 10 hours of, of uh, dual time with him wasn't dovetailing with the window, the weather window and my uh, pickup window to do this. So I decided to go ahead and um, go pick up the aircraft. I went ahead and did a checkout with a CFI, and I logged that in my time, an hour of dual time with the uh, the instructor to get comfortable with the 140, but then I uh, decided to to fly at home nine hours um, alone, uh, naked basically. So I didn't have insurance when I got home. Called the uh, insurance company up when I got home and said, "Okay, I this is what I did. I did my dual time or my one hour dual time. I did my nine hours." Uh, in the aircraft, I have over 10 hours now of of uh, type, time and type. And they went ahead and uh, wrote the policy on me. Yeah, John. And and my, I, I guess my, my limited experience, um, I was going to say my gut feel, but it, I, I have had some conversations about this, is that it's going to be similar for other airplanes too. Um, if, if you want coverage on day one, then they want uh, a pretty high threshold. They want you to get dual with an instructor and, you know, in, in that type, that make and model and all that. 
But if you're willing to, you know, go fly naked and, and get it some hours, you know, five or 10 hours or whatever their threshold is on your own, and you're not asking them to, to provide the, the coverage and assume the risk, um, when you come back to them, they're usually pretty agreeable. They're like, okay, well, you have PIC time, so you're good to go. So that may be the only way forward for a lot of us. Yeah, that that's what that's my point is. I think that with the the current environment, with, especially with the Sonics, is you may have to uh, go naked. Which the dangerous part is not the the hull coverage; it's the liability. Um, you put that Sonics into someone's house or into a car, um, you you might have a real problem. But, uh, you know, you put it down the field and roll it up into a ball. Well, you know, that, that's hard, but it's you, know, you can walk away from that and you can recover from that. Yeah. And this is where I think it kind of dovetails well into what we're really going to transition here. You know, the go make a friend route. If you can get a, a minimum level of training, you know, it, it's not formalized training with the CFI. That would be the gold standard. You kind of go down a notch and you used a methodical approach with a friend in their airplane uh, even if you can only get a few hours, that's going to get you over the most dangerous part where you're brand new to it. You're new to everything about the Sonics, the systems, the engine, the flying of it, the handling, all that. Um, you're going to get over the most dangerous part. And then maybe the the risk of flying naked for the remaining few hours uh, is a lot better. It's a lot, it's a lot more easy to assume than trying to do everything on your own, including transition yourself into a new airplane with no help whatsoever. Gary, um, I kind of want to, I want to get your perspective, you know, put on your CFI hat, give me some thoughts as to what you think would be, you know, appropriate for a person who just bought a Sonics and, and they're having this dilemma. Well, I think Mike actually mentioned it, uh, but we've kind of glossed over it since since the conversation started. Um, I believe the real crux of it is to be current and proficient already um, when you try to transition into a new aircraft. And I think, unfortunately, many of us, whether Sonics, Zenus, RVs, whatever it is, people spend so much time and energy and years building aircraft that they get very, very rusty. And it is a psychomotor skill. It is very perishable. And I think Mike was exactly right. You need to be current and proficient. And I really want to stress the second part of that, the proficiency part of it, before you start transitioning into a new aircraft. Um, I think if people would take the time and energy and, and the finances to commit to that and, and spend a significant amount of time right before they're getting ready to do their solo into their Sonics, it would go a long way and reducing the number of accident rates that we see, assuming, of course, there's not something mechanical going on. And we're talking about mostly the loss of control uh, that Mike was concentrating on. Okay. You know, that's a great point. And Gary, I want to come back to this in just a second, but this might be a good time just to kind of bring Brennan back into the conversation. So Brennan, I'd like to kind of hear your perspective. You found yourself in this exact position that we're describing. Uh, a new owner of a Sonics looking to get your personal proficiency up and then looking to get insurance so that you're, you're both safe and covered. Um, tell us a little bit about what you went through. Well, when I purchased mine, um, I, first off, I, I have to give a lot of credit to, to Jeff um, and his videos um, on, on the YouTube channel that he does because it, uh, it gave me a lot of perspective about the Sonics itself and it kind of pushed me towards uh, wanting one. Um, 
I, I have about 400 hours of flight time, uh, primarily in the Cessna and Piper world. But I also last year got the experience to fly a couple of light sports, including a Jabiru and a uh, Savannah. And so I, I just really admired the, the distinct difference between the two. And wanting to own my aer- own airplane, um, <clears throat> I uh, actually started with a Cessna 150, had a little incident with it, and uh, I just lost my taste for the, the certified world. And so I ended up with a Kit Fox and wasn't happy with it. And uh, ultimately went back to certified uh, and got a champ and uh, loved it. But, man, it was just too slow. And so I just kept searching for something I thought was going to be a better fit. And that's where the Sonics came into play for me. Um, It intimidated me just sitting in it. Um, It felt completely different from what I'd known of the Cessnas and even the Jabiru. Um, And so me being a college professor and knowing the importance of uh, education and, and training. Um, and uh, my backstory is I, I worked in law enforcement for a long time prior. So training is vital. So I just started looking and I, I reached out to Jeff and, uh, he said, you know, absolutely come on out to Kansas city and, uh, we'll, we'll go up. And so we made that arrangement to do that. And it was an eye opening experience. Um, I was a little intimidated at first, but I quickly realized that the, the Sonex is a very easy plane to fly once it's off the ground. It's just getting it back on the ground um and that's i think where i feel my biggest concern is at still uh, with with takeoff and landings and as far as insurance goes for me um i'm, I'm not sure what my solution is going to be just yet obviously thanks to jeff i've got a couple hours that i've logged in my book um i've looked at a couple other options for just liability only as kind of a temporary crutch to get me to the point where it's more favorable for an insurance company to, to write a policy for me. Yeah. Now, Brennan, uh, I really want to pull this thread that Gary started about the, the proficiency. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to describe, you know, where were you at proficiency wise before you came down here to Kansas City? Um, what did you do and kind of assess yourself, your own level of proficiency? And, and, and was that right? Was that enough? And then Gary, I want to go back to you and and then I want you to give us your your thoughts on what the, the right level of proficiency and the and the practice tasks really should look like. So, Brennan, why don't you start us off? Well, I started my flight experience. I got my pilots my uh, private pilot's license when I was eighteen, and then I went on to a flight school. And then nine eleven happened, and so um, I just ended up in law enforcement. It just was the right thing for me to do, and so I, I had a very successful career in law enforcement, and now I, I teach in the law enforcement field. Um, so there was a gap between my flight school time, um, to when I got back into flying and honestly it happened about two years ago because a close family friend uh, passed away and one of the requests was that I spread his ashes. And so I I didn't realize at the time, but he was, wasn't joking when he said that, when he told me that. So I then had to search out uh, a way to, to make that happen. Um, one of the local FBOs has a 172 Uh, at the time they had a Jabiru and they also had a Savannah. And so I got checked out in all three. So before getting the Sonics, uh, I probably logged another 50 hours amongst those three airplanes. Um, and then buying my own um, with the Kit Fox, I went and got a, a tailwheel endorsement up in Wisconsin. Really, really liked it. And the Decathlon um, found a whole new world of aviation and uh, ultimately got the, the Araka Champ and logged another probably 50 hours or so in it. Um, and then I sold it and 
basically two days after I sold my champ, I, I had purchased this uh, Sonex. Um, and now I've brought it home and, and just kind of worked the bugs out of it. I have, have not had it off the ground yet. I've done several fast taxis in it, but uh, I'm still working some bugs out with oil leaks and so forth. Okay, so in the you know month or two, you know immediately prior to flying with me and my Sonics, uh, what did you do, and kind of how would you rate your your skills, your you know your stick and rudder skills before you showed up? Um, I feel like I was pretty proficient. I have I, I continued to fly um, I, through the rental process with the 172. Um, it, it, having such a long gap in my flying history, I, I just don't want to let that happen again. And so um, I've, I've tried to make sure that I'm proficient because I've got two small kids, and they love to fly with me. And, in fact, over Easter, we, we flew down to Lambert's Cafe in Sykeston and back, and uh, it, that, that's a thrill for, for all of us. So it's extremely important for, for me now, moving forward, to maintain that. And prior to having the Sonex, um, I was I was still on that path already. So I uh, I also agree that proficiency is uh, very vital, regardless of what type of aircraft you're getting in. Um, I think that uh, as long as your feet are off the ground and and, and you're maintaining some level of proficiency, you're already a step ahead. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So, Gary, um, pivoting back over to you, what do you think are the key things that uh, a pilot ought to be proficient in before they're really ready to to say, okay, now let's talk Sonics transition? Well, I'm going to sound like a broken record if you went back and listened to many of our previous podcasts. Uh, I'm I'm a real stickler for harping onto minimal controllable airspeed, in other words, slow flight. Not only the usual power on and power off stalls, uh, but I really like to have people practice something called a falling leaf. Uh, Mike, are you familiar with that uh, type of practice? Uh, I mean, slow flight MCA. Yes, we've done some. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that's it's good aircraft control just to to slow flight as well as cruise, and uh, that, that's always a good uh, good idea. Well, what I'm talking about when a falling leaf, many people aren't really familiar with the term, but basically it's a prolonged, protracted stall and recovery, uh, mostly by using rudder. Um, it's, it's just a perpetual thing, and you're constantly working the rudder back and forth. This, and the airplane just looks kind of like a falling leaf, if you can kind of visualize what might be happening. As it stalls, it goes down, it stalls, it goes down, and you're working that water rudder very, very hard to maintain directional control, which, of course, is the crux to prevent uh, this developing into spins. Um, doing, you know, usual maneuvers, straight and levels, turns, climbs, uh, I, I don't think that's where people have the difficulty. It's not at, at the higher or normal ends of the envelope uh, that people get into trouble. It's at the very slow end of the envelope when they're taking off and they're low on airspeed or they're coming into land and they get too slow on speed, not being able to instinctively sense the aircraft is losing uh, lift as you're getting close to exceeding the angle of attack before the horns go off and everything else. You need to develop a very, very fine motor control and sense of the aircraft. And so many people are so scared of doing stalls that once they pass their check rides, they'll do anything they can to avoid it until the next biennial flight comes along. And they may or may not you know, be forced into it too much by the CFI doing the check ride. So I, I believe that you got to get low, you got to get slow. And you need to be very, very comfortable because that's where the loss of control accidents occur. Yeah, Gary, I think that I think it's worth um, all the repetition. You're right. That's where you're going to have a problem that's going to lead to a really bad outcome. Something that 
that causes you to depart from control flight, that's how you're going to get yourself seriously injured or killed. All right. Well, um, Brennan, I want to get into your thoughts about, you know, what we did. We, we followed the, the transition training syllabus, I, I thought, pretty well. Um, so I want to go through your experience and just kind of have you just recount what you thought was good, kind of how the flow went. I want to go through all that. But for people that are not familiar with the syllabus, I want to do just a a real brief overview. And uh, there'll be a link to download it in the show notes. So uh, you can always just pause it right here, go to the website, download the syllabus and open it up and have a look for yourself. Uh, It's a great document. It's something that's going to be around for a long time. But in general, the first part of the, the transition training syllabus is just a couple of overview type documents. It talks about preparing for a first flight. It talks about some thoughts on how to structure that and be successful. And then when you get past the, that initial part, then you actually get to the course outline. And the way the course outline is done, there is a ground training se- section um, and it breaks out some training topics and a very deliberate checklist of, of topics that you need to cover that support your flight training to come. And that ground training is listed as one session, and it could be, you know, one to two hours of of training or discussion on things like systems and handling characteristics and stall and procedures, all that kind of stuff. You do all that on the ground so you don't have to do it in the air, where it's it's hard to do in the air anyway. And then you get into the flight training, and the syllabus is broken down into three flight lessons. The first is an intro and a demonstration, and it's just sort of a get acquainted with the airplane. The second is... Uh, airmanship proficiency. It's the basic maneuver section. And it's go out and just be, you know, start to develop some finesse and mastery of the airplane in flight. And that's where you might go out and do, um, you know, various other maneuvers based on sight picture and slow flight and things like that. And then lastly, the third lesson is the takeoff and landing. And I think that that's probably the right order. Um, you might do all three lessons in one actual physical flight, or it might take you multiple lessons to, you know, multiple flights to just do each of these lessons. The, the pace is really not designed to be like one flight equals one lesson. And uh, I think that all that is good. You kind of have to have a basic awareness of how to finesse the airplane before you start getting it down close to the runway where, um, where it gets sporty pretty fast. Um, so I think that it follows a very logical breakdown. And I think this is a great way to kind of walk you through it. Now, Mike, um, you know, you've had uh, probably more input into this than anyone else. Um, give us a little bit of behind the scenes thought process that went into structuring the, the actual elements that go into the, the syllabus. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. The, the whole idea when I, when, when I designed this training syllabus, uh, was one of the allowances that, uh, transition training does, uh, give for the student is you can sign off a flight review. Uh, we used to call them BFRs, but now we just call them flight reviews. So in this case, just like you said, Jeff, you start off with ground training. Well, part 61 says you have to have at least one hour of ground training for a flight review sign off. So there it is. And now it also is what Joe and the other instructors up at Sonex would use to do introductions and aircraft design and so on and so forth. When you get into the actual flying, this syllabus um, basically mirrors it's the Cliff Notes version of the private pilot training syllabus that I used for years and years when I taught at 
Ohio State University's flight training program. Uh, same idea. Start off with just basic flying uh, introduction stuff. In this case, when you'll what you'll see is flight lesson number one. Just gets into getting to know the airplane, getting comfortable with the controls, the techniques, so on and so forth. Flight lesson number two gets into the performance maneuvers, uh, steep turns, stalls, slow flights, ground reference. And then last thing is, just like you said, the takeoff and landing. I wanted to follow and kind of mirror that because it worked really well in the collegiate training program. And also, I thought this would work really, really well for people who were transitioning into Sonics. And hopefully at the end of this lesson, uh, or at the end of the lessons, you could then not only have a comfort with the airplane, but if you needed to, you could have your flight review signed off, so on and so forth. It's exactly like you said, Jeff. There's three flight lessons. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to do three individual flights, or you might mean you have to do more than three flights. It's just a personal comfort level. And talking with some of the Loda holders and, and Joe Norris up at the factory when they were doing it, so on and so forth, there were quite a range of students that would come up and, and, and do the training. Some people were well-prepared and they had been flying light sport size airplanes a lot and they could get all this done very quickly, whereas some people it took a little bit more time. So it's very, very individualized. And this training syllabus can be certainly modified uh, to the extent of the student's comfort and, and desires. You know, we did not put anything about simulated IFR flying. We didn't do anything about cross-country flying or night flying. It's all just personal preference. I didn't think any of that stuff was necessary for a transition training course. I just wanted to do what was required to get somebody enough comfort in the airplane so when they go home and they jump in theirs the first time, they were uh, they were ready to go and, and fly theirs. So that was the whole basis behind the the design of the syllabus. And uh, we made some small changes as time went on, but uh, I think overall what you see now uh, is, is still a, to this day, a pretty good outline for getting somebody comfortable. And hopefully Jeff and, and Brandon, you guys can kind of vouch for that, that if you do complete this, it's, uh, it's a, a good level to where somebody could go fly the plane they just purchased or the one they just finished building and they can uh, hopefully enjoy and focus on the flying and not worry about just being unsure of how the thing even handles. Yeah. Is that how, how many did you do, Jeff? How many flights did you and Brandon do? Um, we just did one flying session um, or, or, well, actually my memory is, is a little fuzzy. Um, Brennan, why don't you, I'm just going to pitch this over to you. Why don't you walk us through what we did and, um, and let's just break it down. Okay. So uh, when we met up, um, we did some uh, basic just ground discussion. I think we talked for about an hour or so, and that was very beneficial uh, talking about systems. And uh, Jeff gave a really in-depth uh, discussion with the uh, uh, aero ejector carb and how it's you know different than, than others in the in the field. Um, talking about just flight characteristics and what to expect um, before getting in the plane. Um, we spent a lot of time just basically on systems and electrical and, and those types of things that as a new owner was very valuable for me because I could then come back home to mine and, and look at those things that he pointed out and just, you know, yeah, that's, that was probably something I should have looked at or maybe I overlooked it. So it was good for me to be able to do that and experience that. Um, we did it in one flight one uh, afternoon and um, 
the first portion of it was a quick hop over to another airport uh, to get gas in, in Jeff's Sun X. And he just kind of watched. Um, and when we got there, we switched seats and uh, he guided me through my uh, first takeoff with it. And we spent about two hours in the air, uh, roughly. Um, and it worked out good. First part of it was uh, fairly smooth. And that kind of trans- transitioned into a little bit more of a, a bumpier day. So I got to experience um, what a, a not so friendly um, temperatures and thermals and, and winds and those types of uh, circumstances have on the effects of the airplane or how effective the controls would be, I should say. Um, and then uh, I did what I thought was probably the worst landing of my life. And <laughs> Jeff reassured me that it wasn't. And it was actually pretty good. Uh, I, I Still wouldn't agree with him on that one, but uh, nevertheless. Well, you didn't see me uh, land, uh, you know, at, at Oshkosh, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, it was a great experience. Um, I, I still feel a little on edge uh, about going up on my own. Um, I, I think that anybody that gets on a plane in a plane to control themselves and, and says they're 100% confident is crazy. Um, you you got to have a little bit of fear in it to, to make to put yourself in check more than anything. Um, I, I think I, if, if there was anything that I would change, it would be that, uh, my experience from being in Jeff's plane to being able to take mine up, uh, be shorter. And like I said, I've still not been able to get it off the ground yet, uh, with weather and working out some oil leaks. Um, it's, I think it's been about three or four weeks now since I was out in Kansas city with Jeff. So, um, I'm, I've done a couple fast taxis. I've done some ground handling stuff just to keep myself familiar with that site picture of, of what that dashboard looks like. Um, Cause it's significantly different from anything else that I've ever flown before. Yeah. That's something that, you guys go ahead, didn't. John. Or, no, I just wanted to say that he didn't notice your Tigger sticker that you earned at um, Brekeloff. I, I didn't want him to think that was the standard that he had to emulate. Yeah. Well, that, that that's what the Tigger the Tigger sticker we put on there was because of your landing skills, Jeff. <laughs> I just like to, uh, you know, I like to show everybody that um, you have to work hard to outdo me. Jeff usually becomes current on landings with one landing. <laughs> <laughs> that's efficient. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, Brennan, yeah. um, we 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 spent about a good solid hour. Uh, I didn't actually look at the the clock, but I know it was at least an hour. Um, and part of that is because there are some things I think are really important. You know, first off, I want to be able to just talk through, um, you know, sight picture and the fact that when you're making a turn left, the sight picture over the nose looks a lot different than when you're making a turn to right. Uh, you're not sitting on the center line of the airplane, and boy, that that looks really different. And it's a good time to point it out, you know, on the ground, so that way when you see it in the air, you've already kind of had the introduction, and and we can kind of just circle back to it. Um, I, I find that that is usually in very shallow turns you don't notice it, but when you start making thirty to forty five degree bank turns. Um, that's one of the first things that uh, a transitioning pilot kind of has to grapple with. Wow, I really got to learn a very different sight picture when I go left than when I go right. Yeah, absolutely. That was yeah, that was a big thing to to get used to. Um, obviously, with the way that it, it sits on the ground, it, it doesn't mean anything compared to what it's like when it's straight and level or a, a hard bank left or a right turn. Um, it, it's just significantly different, and it's one of those things that you really have to train your mind to get used to, I think. Mm-hmm. 
the other thing, which is going to be a little bit different um, for everybody, depending on what how their airplane is set up and their engine and all that. But I think um, it's a great time to really go through uh, the do's and don'ts and peculiarities of an AeroCarb. Um, it, it's a really simple carburetor. And I think most of us like it because it is simple once you kind of understand how to operate it. And so that's a great time to really get a good primer on how to set it up, how to know that it's set up properly, and then what to do in flight. And, and part of that is, you know, how you start it up, how you taxi, how you fly it in flight, including uh, all the way through the descent. And then, you know, when, when it's time to put it away again. So I think that's time well spent. I agree. And you did a really good job of kind of pointing out the uh, the little things uh, to pay attention to with that. I think you described it as taxing it brutally lean, um, just just to you know, add that extra layer of, of protection, not filing plugs and those types of things. Um, and so that's, you know, part of my now to-do list uh, for startup and shutdown and even for taxing. That's one of the things I pay close attention to. Right. And uh, I guess just, uh, you know, for the sake of completeness here, I always recommend that, you know, when you start up the engine, you get it, get the engine running, lean it on the ground until you almost can't lean it anymore or the engine will die. At that point, uh, if you could lean it just a little bit more, that'd be perfect. That way, there's no chance that you're going to get to take off power in a semi-leaned condition and um, cause the engine to overheat or just to be working too hard uh, on, on climb out. Uh, you want that thing so lean that it'll barely run at idle. And then if you accidentally try to go to full power, it'll just die on you. Yep, I agree also. And uh, back to the syllabus portion, um, we did a, you did a really good job of just kind of going through it line by line and uh, any topic that you felt was more important obviously we spent more on more time on that so um, I think that it's laid out very well uh, I think it's a, a good tool uh, anybody that has a sonic should probably reference it every once in a while and those folks that are, are looking at it need to look at it too and have it as a, a guide for them of what to expect so it's a, it's a great document hats off to you guys for doing it yeah, that's something I think that's particularly useful about the syllabus. The back page is a kneeboard checklist, and it has both the ground training topics and the flight topics. And in order to stay organized, you can literally just start at the top and run all the way through it, checking off each item as you go. And when everything's checked off, you've had a pretty good, you know, either review or introduction to all those topics. All right, Gary, so... What do you think that, you know, a, a, a in terms of, you know, someone who is, um, you know, getting some time with a, a Sonics buddy in their airplane, they're only going to get maybe one shot at it. Like, hey, I got to make the most of this one flight with my, my new Sonics friend here. Um, how do you think your time is best served if that's the only opportunity you get? You know, most of the pilots, we basically already know, already know most of the premises, you know, you know, the ins and outs and how to do basic maneuvers. Uh, I think the biggest goal is tactile feel. You know, I found the Sonics to be one of the most enjoyable aircraft I have ever flown. Uh, it was just fingertip light. You could just kind of breathe on it. Um, you know, I've never had the, the pleasure of flying something like an F-16 you know, a flight by wire, but I understand it's very similar as far as you just kind of think about what you want the aircraft to do and it will do it. Um, again, along with developing, you know, the slow flight characteristics is getting to be able to feel aircraft. 
And to be able to feel a sonics and, and know what it's doing and, and what it's about not to do, which is when it's getting to the point where it's not going to be flying any longer. Uh, if you can get the pilot to uh, just fly with just the pads of their fingertips uh, to, to develop that sense and, and that connection with the aircraft, if you're not going to do anything else, I, I think if you could do an hour worth of that, that would probably help them more than trying to just go through a whole bunch of procedures. Yeah, I think that's um, that's good because that'll help you develop that finesse. And uh, your new Sonics friend um, might not be all that eager to have you go practice landings in their airplane. Yeah. Okay. Um, John, um, you spent an hour with the CFI and the 140. What did the CFI really focus on? What he was really focusing on was my handling of the aircraft right at the flare. So we were operating in northern Minnesota on a, uh, a grass strip. And with lots of trees around and a fairly aggressive approach, he was pretty impressed with my approach uh, skills because I'd actually gone into uh, rec law. And so I wasn't too, too afraid of the trees. But what he was saying, what he was uh, focusing on was what was my skill set right at flare? Can I get it down on the three point and control it without bouncing? And so that's what we did. I don't know, probably 20 cycles of uh of landings was to try to get that thing to flare without the bounce and just get it set down on the three-point stance that's different than what i normally do with the sonics the sonics i all come in pretty hot and because of its low weight and skill or the the way it uh operates i can i can put the sonics in on a pretty tight spot the 140 weighs, you know, a good uh, three or 400 pounds more. It uh, definitely operates a lot slower than what I'm used to. And so putting it in in that kind of situation was a little more challenging. And so we had to do a lot of cycles on that. Mm-hmm. But he was really focusing on landing. He wasn't focusing on takeoff. He wasn't focusing on, on controllability of the air. It was all about getting it set up and controlling it on that final, that final approach. Yeah, well, and that's uh, that's probably um, you know really good because if you look at the accident statistics, uh, landing accidents uh, are always up there. Um, they may not be the number one thing, but they are closer to the top than the bottom. If you're going to have a problem, uh, there's a really good chance that it's going to be on landing, including Inasonics. So that's, yeah, that's time well spent. Yeah. So his, you know, his focus was on landing. And I I think that's primarily what I would do if I were giving a buddy a ride in my Sonics to uh, give them transition training. I assume they know how to fly an airplane. So takeoff, uh, pattern work, stall spin, all that should be pretty intuitive. The landing characteristics of the Sonics, it's a docile airplane, but it has some quirks. The 140, what I learned was it likes to land in a tail dragger three point. So it's almost a carrier landing is the best way to land that 140. Um, I'm used to landing the Sonics in a, in a wheel landing situation and then put the tail down. So that was a little bit of a transition to, to learn how to do that and, and keep it when I try to land the 140 in a wheel landing, 
I'm bouncing down the runway, mm-hmm. which is embarrassing. And I don't want that. And I want Gary to see, see that. He would never give you a hard time. Oh, no, he would. And it, it, it would be earned. But I think maybe one of the things that um, complicates it in the Sonics is in Cruise, um, you, you know, you use very small control pressures to guide the airplane around. But as you start getting slower and you start getting closer to the ground, you've got to start doing a lot more. The stick starts moving more. Your movements are displacing greater distances and the pressures are different. And so you don't get a lot of time to practice that aspect of flying the Sonics until you're right there close to the ground. Brendan, you talked about the, you know, the, the landing was the, was the worst you made. But we made, I don't know how many patterns and how many approaches. And the normal thing was... You know, let's uh, let's work on the procedures. Let's make sure that we're lined up with final, and um, you know the configuration is good. And then when the when we're at a point where we could we could make the runway, we're at fifty feet or whatever. We'll go around and we'll get set up again. And then when you're consistently nailing your approaches, then we'll start getting closer to actual into the round out and and close to the runway until we're eventually landing. The problem with that is that you know everything happens pretty quick in that last you know. That last 10 feet, things happen quick. And the first couple of times you do it, it, it does happen fast and it takes you by surprise. Unfortunately, I just don't know how else to replicate that, you know, that 10 seconds, that critical 10 seconds, than actually to, you know, get down close to the way and do it. Yeah, I'm not sure either. And that was, I think, really beneficial. And it, it, I guess to a certain degree, it kind of caught me by surprise when we were on the ground. Uh, and I thought, oh, man, we're going to go around at some point. No, no, we're, we're on the ground. So I was like, okay, okay, okay. But uh, yeah, that part was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, and and just thinking back on it, um, it was not a really bad landing. It was just, um, it was obvious to me that you were having to do a lot of quick thinking on your feet. You know, how much back pressure do I need? How high do I need to get the nose? You know, how do I do all this? And oh, by the way, by that point in the day, we had a pretty good little crosswind blowing us around too. So there was a lot of things that had to happen in that last. 10 feet that, you know, you were working pretty hard and pretty fast and it just takes a little bit to, you know, to get it. That actually is why I like to do so many practice approaches, you know, where we're, we know we're going to go around is because you want to get all that out of the way. Let's get, let's get the hard stuff, you know, isolated on its own. So we'll get it where you can fly the pattern. You can do all those speed changes and configuration changes and get right down to the threshold every time without even thinking about it. At that point, now we're ready to turn our full attention onto the last 10 feet. All right. Well, Brennan, just um, let's put some summary thoughts together here. And what I'd like you to do is um, maybe give us some recommendations for others that are in your position that they're going to go download a copy of the syllabus. They're going to read it. They're going to try to either find a friend or maybe find a local CFI. Um, and, and really, they're going to have to drive their training. Give us some some good recommendations that you would give to someone who's going to try to replicate this. Well, I think more than anything, in the, in the meantime, if you're not flying other airplanes or planes that are going to be similar, if you, if you don't have the ability to get into a Sonex, is to talk to other people and to watch all the videos that are out there on YouTube. There are thousands of videos, it seems like, of people taking off and landing. Um, Jeff, you do a great job with uh, a lot of the videos you post because you're very detailed about what you're doing. Um, And so that was kind of fresh in my mind of what it was going to kind of look like. 
um, and then to couple all that together and combine it together uh, with the actual experience. Um, so as we've kind of already mentioned, I think understanding the syllabus, going through it, knowing systems, uh, being a proficient pilot, regardless of what you're flying. Um, and like we've already mentioned again, yeah, a lot of, you know, it's the, the big things to worry about is the subtleties of this plane, not the straight and level flight, uh, but to get it back on the ground safely and uh, understanding where those quirks are at. Um, so proficiency and, and just doing your homework and reach out. Um, I was really kind of surprised at how quick uh, Jeff jumped on the opportunity and offered it to me. Um, I'm a total stranger from Southern Illinois, uh, but I, I've got a Sonics. We've got that in common now. And uh, I hope to, to be able to return that favor to somebody um, down the road uh, with mine. So just, just find people, reach out, do your research, study, watch the videos, um, learn as much as you possibly can about it, and, and don't take anything for granted. Good. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Mike, uh, give us some summary thoughts. Yeah, the, the couple things that I was kind of thinking about as we talked this evening. When I was getting ready to fly my YX for the first time here about 10 years ago, I talked to, and this is going to be repeating what you've already said, but I, as I was getting ready to fly mine, I was taxiing it around to slow taxis, and I talked to a flight instructor that I had worked with before who had 18,000 plus hours of dual given. And I told him, I'm getting ready to fly this thing. And he basically said, you have two choices, fly the same airplane that somebody else has already built, or like we've said, try to fly five or six airplanes that are similar to it. And those are the best ways to get you ready to fly yours. So if you are building or buying and you have the ability to get up in a Sonics, great. That's wonderful. If you can't, then flying several airplanes like a Flight Design CT, a Rans, a Vans RV-12, a fill-in-the-blank, whatever light sport airplane, those will help you get comfortable with control feels, speeds, performance, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I have been contacted by a few people, and I, I hate this call because I want to help, but it always kind of frightens me. I've been contacted by a few people who have said, I'm buying a Sonex. Uh, I need to get this thing home. I'm flying it myself. What do I do? And basically, the, they infer that they're not going to really do any training to prepare for it. They're just not going to go. And that's... Uh, I hate hearing that. I wish that uh, the environment right now was better, that we didn't have to do that. But uh, that's their choice based on their comfort level. The two things that I always advise people is be ready when you're flying the airplane. The pitch is going to be more sensitive than you're used to. And the other bit of advice I try to give everybody, and I'm sure Jeff and, and you guys have covered this as well, before you fly the airplane, get in the pilot seat, close the canopy, and just sit in there and memorize the pitch attitude of the thing sitting on the ground. Find, look and memorize where the horizon hits the glare shield, the side of the fuselage, whatever the case may be. Because when you're getting in and you're on final approach and you're getting into the flare, if you can set that pitch attitude and just hold it there, the plane should have no trouble settling in landing comfortably and then you just guide the thing down the center line from there if you can hit that pitch attitude in the flare 
it should be a decent landing, at least to get you for, through the first couple. So we talked a little bit ago about if you do have to do just water flight or if that's all that you have uh, the access to via a friend, whatever the case may be. Those are the two things that I really recommend is get comfortable with just the pitch, the, the way the airplane flies, and also really look and memorize that pitch attitude and the flare and the landing. Uh, Gary said it, you know, you get into stalls, you get into slow flight, you get into performance maneuvers. You can kind of get used to and comfortable with those as you go. And, you know, there's not a whole lot of risk there. The risk is on landing and that's where you really want to try to focus and be careful. So those would be my bits of advice. Uh, hopefully, you know, as, as the community continues to grow and new airplanes are flying, we can get more and more people who are willing to give uh, friends and new acquaintances rides, just like you did, Jeff. That's a wonderful thing. Uh, hopefully, we can start getting some more LOTA members uh, who have an airplane and are willing to go through the LOTA process and do the more official transition training. Uh, that would be a wonderful thing. Uh, but uh, you know, for those of you who are listening to this and are getting ready to build or buy, you know, reach out and try to find somebody to get some time in the airplane. And if you're listening to this and you have an airplane, uh, as best as you're able to try to be willing and helpful and, and help the community and give others demo rides and orientation rides, let them do some flying a little bit just to get comfortable with the airplane. And hopefully we'll get some good results, uh, in the end of the day. So those would kind of be my thoughts, uh, for this, uh, for this discussion. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Those are great points. All right, John, over to you. No, what Mike said is great. I just wanted to say that when I did mine, uh, the only option I had, there was no Lodo uh, options. Sonics didn't have their product or their uh, their program in, involved. I had a local Sonics guy who took me up, and I was in right seat. He's in left seat because he wasn't a CFI. And he at least showed me sight pictures. And we did a couple of uh, steep approaches, some slips. Um, and we really focused on, on landings, uh, what, what it's going to look like when you come in for landing. And that really did help. I only did one flight with him, probably an hour. We probably did, you know, five or six approaches. And then I went to my flight instructor that I had uh, with my flying club. And we, we rented a Gobosh, which was very similar. It was a Rotex uh, aluminum light sport. And we ran around the airport just to get familiar with the topography, the, uh, you know, this is where you'll bail out. If you have a problem here, you go north, you're going to land that field. You're going to, if you're on downwind and it fails, you're going to land over here. Um but the, the aircraft was similar in, in performance. And then I felt pretty comfortable when I sat in my airplane and said, okay, I'm ready to fly this thing that I had made myself uh, aware of the airport. I made myself aware of the, the uh, limitations of the light sport because I was a Cessna guy. So, you know, I'd flown a lot of 170 uh, 172s and 150s, but it's the one the size is a little different, so it's a little twitchier, it's a little you know quick, quicker, and uh, I kind of knew that, so I knew that to not 
you know, over control it. That's kind of my point is you just kind of move into it and you go, okay, you got to adjust as it's, um, as you do that first flight. Yeah, John, there, there's a, there's a couple of things in there that you said, I think that are really important. Um, the first one is you really kind of have to, you have to chip away at the, at the entire mountain of tasks that you have to get familiar with. And you can do it all, all at once on your very first flight in your new Sonics, you know, doing a maiden flight. It's the first time you, you flew a Sonics and it was your airplane. You know, a lot of us have done that, but that's not the best way forward. The best way is let's break this down and compartmentalize it and let's work on a few things in isolation so that you don't have to try to think super fast on your feet, um, you know, when you're doing it for real. That's the first thing. And then the second thing that you said, I think, is is absolutely key. And that is you have to take charge of your own transition experience. Um, you can wait for someone to come approach you and say, hey, um, how'd you like to do this? Um, but you may not like what you get if you just sit back and wait. You have to be willing to start reaching out to people, to make some phone calls, to start thinking creatively, you know, to go find a CFI and go find a plane similar that you can fly um, and kind of put together your own thing. Be in charge of your own proficiency program. And if that means that you assemble a cast of supporting characters and you are the director, well, that's what you do. And I think that's that's super important. All right, Gary, um, why don't you finish this up? Well, I think you guys have pretty well covered all the flight aspects of it. Uh, but, Jeff, I think you did something, too, that I really do recommend uh, new, especially transitioning Sonics pilots and those who did not build the aircraft, is to truly understand what the aerocarb or aeroinjector does or does not do. Um, it's, 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 it's an interesting little gizmo. It's very simplistic. Uh, but it has a lot of quirks, and we know from, from accidents that we've seen, witnessed, and, and talked to people about uh, not having a full understanding of how the aeroject works uh, can get people into trouble very quickly, especially for those who buy a new airplane that uh, didn't build it. Yes. Um, if you have, if you're the primary builder and you've gone through the exercise of installing the carburetor and reading the manual and getting it tuned, uh, you've got a, a pretty good background already. Even if you have more to learn and you're going to, it's going to take you a little bit to refine your knowledge. You're a lot further down that path than the person that buys an existing airplane that may be tuned perfectly or may not be tuned well. Um, so you got to invest some time to really educate yourself on how that, that device works, how to be successful in it. Part of that is reaching out to others that have done that. You know, sonicsbuilders.net is a great place. And, you know, we have numerous podcasts that, you know, talk about it to try to arm pilots with the tools they need to be successful. So, yeah, that that, that dovetails nicely with the you have to take charge and, and do the research and drive the train here. You know, Jeff, um, getting back into the My System 140 and knowing all the inter- – uh, the intricacies of the uh, aerocarb. It is a big deal to know how to manage that mixture with the aerocarb versus the uh, the carburetor on the 140, the certified aircraft. I push that mixture fully forward. I can fly that airplane all day long. I may not be as efficient as impossible, but um, 
when I get in my Sonics, I really got to fine tune that guy to get the performance enough to take the plane off the off the ground. So, AeroCarb does is is a big deal with uh, transition training. Yeah, and Mike, um, not to put a negative spin on this, but you hit it in your initial comments. One of the precipitators of accidents is engine issues, either stoppages or losses of power. Um, and some of that can be attributed to how we have set up our airplanes, including the aerocarb. So um, becoming more familiar with that will help get over the startle factor and the indecision if we have to, you know, do something in flight and we're having a problem. So, yeah, it's definitely a, an essential thing that we have to learn. Yeah, absolutely. Any, I mean, no matter what you have, carburetor, I mean, just, just learning the airplane systems is always good. If you have a Rotec carburetor with a fuel pump, I mean, know when to use that uh, you just uh, or, or anything. That's uh, it's, uh, good insurance that's very simple. The people who build their airplanes should probably know it pretty intimately. But if you buy a flying one, take the time to really dig into it and make sure you're knowledgeable, comfortable with the systems. If you can talk to the builder itself, then do that or whatever the case may be. But yeah, that's, that's all very important. Um, you would definitely want to make sure that you're very comfortable and knowledgeable of the airplane before you hop in and go because up in the air is not the time to learn how to tune a carb or work a system or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And Mike, and I think that maybe um, some of us are, are products of our early upbringing. Maybe, you know, when I was a student pilot, um, I knew how to pop the oil door and make sure the engine was still in there and uh, check the oil. And that was about it. That was the level of my systems knowledge when it came to power plant. I knew where the sumps were and I probably remembered to sump, you know, but you know, that only gets you so far. And when you take the plunge as an experimental owner, you really have to up your, your knowledge of systems and structure and things like that. You have to become the resident expert on that airplane. There's no one else out there that needs to be better at, at that particular systems than you. So you gotta, you gotta commit to that and really learn the uniqueness and, and really become a pro at it. Sure. Or remember, you know, if, if we're talking, you know, for example, Vans RV12s, when they're all built the exact same way, that's one thing. But every Sonics out there is unique. Everyone's got its own little, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies and quirks, and there's no two that are the exact same. So it's very important to take the time to really know your airplane and your exact one and, uh, you know, make sure that you're comfortable with how everything works and how it's all assembled and where everything is. Even it's, uh, you just, uh, it's, it's worth the time to really take some time and, and check things over and make sure you're ready to go before you hop in and hit the start button and away you go. And John, I know you've talked a lot about this on our previous podcast. Uh, this goes back to the experimental mindset and that's essential. Absolutely. If you've got a, a certified or someone who's who's been only flying certified aircraft, um, they have a very limited expect <laughs> limited expectation of how the engine's going to operate over, you know, their, their entire throttle range. You get into an experimental aircraft and it is a fine tune. It's a, you've got to know how to play that instrument and you just can't drive it. You've got to really play it. And that's that's the key is you go experimental, especially with narrow carb. And I'm not dissing narrow carb. 
I, I think it's a really elegant and simplistic uh, induction system. Um, very reliable, but you have to tune it and you have to tune it while you're playing it. And so that's that's the difference between that and a Cessna 150 where you just kind of set the mixture where you normally set it and you give it full throttle and it works fine. And the engine runs great and you land great. The aero carb, yeah, no, maybe not. And, uh, you know, in all fairness, um, you know, the, the Cessna 150 that you're describing, it's been around for 40 years and mechanics have been working on them for 40 years and, you know, all those types of things. That plane has got thousands of hours to work the bugs out. Most of the airplanes that are being sold, if you've got a couple hundred hours, um, you know, that's, that's a kind of a middle-aged Sonics on the, on the secondary market. Uh, it's just going to take a little bit of time to let everything settle in and get all the bugs worked out. Many, many times they're still very low time and they haven't really been fully broken in. Well, and the key thing is when you jump into a Cessna, whether you're renting it or you just bought it, it's probably going to run just the way that you knew that Cessna ran when you flew it 30 years ago. The Sonics is a whole different gig because it's amateur built. And so it has all those different features that are not standard to that aircraft. So take that into mind when you're building your own or you're flying someone else's. All right. Well, good. Um, hey, uh, great comments all around. Um, Mike, I, I want to just um, thank you again for the work you put in. It's going to be a lasting document that is going to continue to serve the Sonics community. So thanks for your efforts. Thanks for your guidance and leadership in getting that document set up and available to the foundation members. And um, I really like it. Uh, I'm going to continue to use it. And um, I, I really encourage everybody to download a copy and go through it. Even if you're just going to help out, you know, a future friend or you do want to you want to go through and, and work on your own proficiency. It's a great tool for all of us. So thanks again, Mike. My pleasure. Yeah, I hope uh, I hope more people are willing and able to use it, and instructors are willing to use it as well. And uh, you said it's all about safety. That's the whole goal for all of us: is be safe and uh, fly safely as we're as the Sonics world keeps growing. And Brennan, um, yeah, thanks for um, coming on and talking about your experiences. You know, you're always welcome to come on back as the weather's getting better. We're going to have more flying, so if you want to come back and do some more, let me know. Come on down. Uh, thanks again for having me. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I, I can't say enough thanks to Jeff for the experience and uh, giving me the opportunity to fly his, and I will probably take you up on that offer um, if I don't fly mine out to uh, come out and see you and hopefully meet the other guys uh, along the way as well. So thanks again for having me. All right, John, Gary, good to hear from you. Um, hopefully we're going to see some air underneath the wings of all of our collective airplanes here soon. Uh, I am starting to get a little antsy for uh, for those, you know, long after work flights. Um, I haven't done it for a while, and I, I kind of need to get back at it. I looked at my logbooks, and my last flight was in early January. And so last weekend, I got the Cessna 140 out for the first time. So it's almost three months. And so I went ahead and did three full stop landings and takeoffs to get current again. Yeah, that's just uh, depressing to have to be able to do that. <laughs> and and two of those landings were awful. One of them was really good. 
And I had the whole glider club watching me. So. Yeah, exactly. I was going to tell you, I, I can tell you which one was the good one. It's the one where nobody was watching. Oh, yeah. No, no, they, they loved the first one. And they said, well, damn, you lost it after the last two. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a tough crowd. All right, Gary, um, I'm look forward to getting out your way and coming to see you, get you and John again. And we're going to have to, uh, you know, get the crew back together and uh, tap a fresh keg and tell war stories again. Yeah, it's always good hosting. I always look forward to our visits. And hopefully get some more flying in here pretty soon. Perhaps I can get back out your way. You know, that one of the guys were talking about doing the other fly-in back to the Lake of the Ozarks this, this summer. Uh, I'm not sure how that's going to go for me yet, but, you know, it's an option. Yeah, if you get down this way, let me know. Um, I'm always interested. Uh, it was fun last year. Uh, if you come back this way, uh, we'll go do it again. It'll be fun. All right, guys. Uh, get out there, enjoy some good spring weather and, um, you know, go make a new friend and try to encourage them to take their transition training seriously and, uh, go become proficient and be a good, safe pilot. Thanks guys. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for everything, Jeff. Nice job. Thanks. See ya. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Flight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command.